0: I love your podcast, this
1: is the Gold. This is where it's at. What is up? It's a gold fam. Hope everyone had a great weekend. Happy Monday. Super excited for this episode today. Today, my guest is Sergio Chicone. Sergio was born and raised in the Lower East Side. He's a father, comic, fighter, personal trainer student of life and creator of the DBS podcast. For more info on Sergio, you can go to his website, sergiochicon.com, S-E-R-G-I-O-C-H-I-C-O-N.com, sergiochicon.com. I know Sergio from the gym, gym where I go boxing, overthrow in the city. He's a trainer there, met him there. He told me a while back, I'm a comedian, checked him out on Instagram, happened to go and see him just worked out saw him at the beacon theater it was awesome he absolutely crushed it and as i dug more into sergio's background and story it was beyond inspired it was so awesome to see him perform in this huge theater open up for chris de stefano and just such an inspiring story of someone who really and truly is building their dream life and i'm so excited to share his story with you today so with that enjoy All right, awesome. Sergio, thanks so much for coming on the Bits of Gold podcast today.
2: Oh, thanks for having me, brother. How you feeling?
1: I'm feeling good. How about you?
2: I'm doing well. I'm doing well, man.
1: Yeah, so I'm really excited to have you on. I would call you like the gym acquaintance in my life. I've been training at Overthrow for, I don't know, a couple of years on and off now. And I see you in there. We say what's up to each other. And I see on your Instagram that you're posting some of your comedy. And I'm like, hey, I got to come and see you. It just happened to work out first time I see you is when you're opening for Chris DeStefano performing at the Beacon Theater and mm-hmm. absolutely crushed and obviously like, that's, that. oh yeah oh dude it was unbelievable and it's obviously a big theater and I started looking at some of your content on YouTube start reading about some of your posts on Instagram and you have such an inspiring story so I am genuinely so excited to share it today on, on my platform and with the people who tune in.
2: No, I appreciate you, man. Thank you so much. I'm so happy that you got to check out the show at the beacon. I didn't want to give it the power that it deserves, right? I mean, it deserves that power and attention, but as a performer, I didn't want to give it that because I just felt like it will be uh nerve wracking. So the week leading up to that big show, I, uh, practiced working on clearing my head so it was a lot of working out it was a lot of just doing my everyday routine Mm. and that just led me to have a performance the biggest stage in new york for me but but to treat it like any other set at a comedy club so i didn't give it the power that it was asking for that's how i think i felt so at ease and natural and uh, it, was a, it was a lot of fun, man. I'm so happy you got to see
1: that set. Yeah, it was it was awesome. It's funny also because I feel like, obviously, in New York City, you meet a lot of people. And I want to dive into, obviously, how you get into comedy and all that. But a lot of people say, like, oh, yeah, I'm a comedian or I'm trying to do this comedy thing. And I know maybe it's just that I'm Jewish growing up. You hear a lot of people are like, I want to be a comedian. And <laughs> they all suck. You know, like, they're trying. But I think being a comedian is one of the it's got to be, I think, one of the hardest professions. And these people say, oh, I'm doing this comedy thing. Come and see me. And you go and you're like, ah, you know, they had some funny lines, but they're really not that funny. And that's yeah. always been my experience when someone tells me, oh, I'm a comedian. So, you know, when you told me, oh, yeah, I'm a comedian. I tune into some of your content. It's awesome. And then I see you perform at the, the Beacon and it's like, oh, shit, you're, you're not just saying you're a comedian. You're actually a very, very funny comedian.
2: I appreciate that, man. You know, for years, I didn't call myself a comedian either. And even though I'm a working comedian, like it took years to give myself that title because I think it needs to be done with respect and tact. A lot of people, and they do this unknowingly, they're oblivious, but they'll say, they'll try stand-up comedy and they'll say, oh, I'm a comedian. No, you're not. A, A comedian is someone who knows the craft, who's a who makes money, who does it for a living, you know, uh, you know, who's been doing it X amount of years. So I, th- I think people should be uh, very respectful when they take on that title because it's a lot. It's one of the hardest things to fucking do. So for, for years, you know, I was 10 years in and I was still worried as if I'm, you know, I'm a stand-up comic, but I felt like a comedian took on a, a whole mm. other life of its own, you know, like a comedian, you know, like a working comedian. So someone who's done it for for over 10 years, who's, uh, you know, worked every possible scenario. So it took a while for me to get back that title. But I've definitely been on that side where <laughs> I've heard people, you know, they might have done two open mics. And they're like, yeah, I'm a comedian. It's pretty funny.
1: Yeah, yeah. And also, you know, I have some people in mind now, but like also just from the past where, yeah, I'm, I'm doing this comedy thing. And then you see them and it's just like, ah, uh, you know, you're like, it's going to be tough. A lot of people think they're a lot, I think a lot funnier than they are.
2: Yeah. And, you know, also you have to be a bit crazy and a a, a bit. What's the word I'm looking for when you're uh almost delusional when you start this shit like obsessed (laughs) because there's so much rejection. There's so much vulnerability. You have to be a little bit like that in order to move forward because the shit is hard. I mean, you're in front of strange people trying to make them laugh, trying to disarm them with well, your sense of humor, your perspective. And quite often, when you first start, I would say 99% of the time, you just don't have it, you know? And you just got to get through that shit. And it, it takes a while. Longer for some people, your acquaintances or your friends who, who you said, oh yeah, I'm doing this comedy thing, and they, they seem a little oblivious, you almost have to be A little bit like that. You almost got to be like a little crazy. Just Mm. fucking get that jump start.
1: Yeah, that's that's interesting to hear. So I want to take it back, and then we'll jump back into comedy. But how did you end up getting into comedy, and what came first? Because obviously I know you from the boxing gym. Was it boxing or comedy?
2: I boxed in boys' club in my younger teen years, and then I kind of played other sports. I was back and forth in the gym. Stand-up, I didn't start to the age of 25 or 26. But for years, I wanted to be a stand up comic. For years, I watched them on TV BET, Eddie Murphy, you know, Comedy Central. I was a big fan of stand up comedy. I always thought I could do it. We used to take my dates when I was like 17, 18, 19 years old to comedy shows. I used to get free tickets in the East Village at a venue called Boston Comedy Club. And there I saw the likes of Greer Barnes, Patrice O'Neill, DC Benny. Greg Giraldo, like powerhouse comics somewhat of which are not with us anymore. And when I went to these shows, I was super inspired. They were all different flavors, all different takes on life and they were fucking good, but I've always felt like I can do it. Mm. And it took years before I actually developed the gusto to do it. And I'll tell you, I don't know if I would have ever done comedy if it wasn't for tragedy. So at the age of 26, I was working at a loft space doing maintenance, small repairs. One day I went home with a couple of the workers from there. They were helping me lay down some hardwood floor in my apartment. We were down to the last piece of construction to complete the the flooring in the kitchen. And there was like six inches left on a cut that I was doing on a table saw. There was a knot on the wood. While I was cutting the wood, Check this out. I didn't have the wood on a table saw. I had it on the floor, on a slippery floor. So while I was cutting the wood, six inches left to go. The table saw hit a knot in the wood. The table saw jumped up, hit my hand. I cut my finger. I cut my finger off. Yeah, I cut it like you would cut a sausage. And it was mangled. The workers that were with me, they couldn't even make eye contact with me. They looked away. They were horrified. I mean, I saw pieces of my finger that you're not supposed to see, it was a mess. I knew I ruined my finger, right? There was blood on the ceiling and it was awful. It was horrifying, man. Like I just knew like right before my eyes, I just knew that my life wouldn't be the same. I knew I probably wouldn't be able to box again. I knew I would probably have to amputate the finger and it was very emotional, right? I go to the hospital, I'm in the hospital for two days. They repair my finger and I thought they were gonna have to amputate it. I had a choice between amputating the finger or just joining the top of it and removing the middle knuckle. That's the route I went. It was your so middle finger. it was it was my index finger. okay. It was my index finger. So I woke up from surgery and they removed bone from my wrist, reattached my finger. so it's very it's not really noticeable, but I can't really make a like the finger, the index finger it doesn't it's just shorter, right? But I can still box. So mm. this surgeon, Originally told me you're not gonna have the middle knuckle, or if we put the middle knuckle in, you're not gonna be able to close your fist. So you're not gonna be able to box. Like it's gonna feel awkward in the glove. This guy removed bone from my wrist, reattached my finger enough where I can make a fist in the glove.
1: Wow, that's crazy.
2: Yeah, and that happened. I'm not sure if he did that intentionally or if he just knew cosmetically it would be better, or if the the middle knuckle was so mangled from the table saw. That he just figured, listen, we can't save any of this bone. We just gotta make it shorter. So he made a, a great decision. I was still able to box. While I'm laying in the hospital bed during recovery, I was uh reading Frida Kahlo. She's a Mexican painter. You ever heard of her? Uh-uh. Frida Kahlo is a Mexican painter. Back in the days, she was uh um, married to Diego Rivera. He was a um he was also an artist and he used to do, he used to create murals, and he was very he was very lefty he was a radical communist he used to be a big support of the revolutionary movement they were dating and during their relationship she was in an accident she was on in a trolley and she was in an accident where the railing of the, tro- of the trolley impaled her pelvis and went up to her spine she was bound to a hospital bed for over a year wow yeah So she's been an artist. She always felt she was an artist, never tapped into it until she experienced this horrific accident. She's laying in bed. She starts painting. And these paintings are grotesque. They're ugly. And I mean ugly in where, where it's like they're really visually hard to look at because they're so painful. But they're beautiful because they're so raw and honest. So she creates painting after painting in her hospital bed. And they're like beautiful, even though they're horrifying to look at. I mean, it's it's you know it's it's her insides, it's it's uh you know her, her spine being severed. It's it's, a, it's wild. And while I'm in bed healing from my accident, I'm reading a part where she's talking about how she tapped into her creative side during the most horrible experience of her life. So I was inspired by that, Danny. I was ins- like really moved by that. I was like. This is an opportunity for me to do anything I, I, I dreamed of in my life, right? I've always wanted to do comedy. But yeah. for eight years, I've been in fear of it, of rejection, of not being able to do well enough, of you know, telling myself, oh, I'll do it next year, and putting it off. I felt the physical and mental torment of healing from this injury. Part of it was vanity. Part of it was physical, because I didn't lose a piece of my body. And it's, a lot of it was mental anguish. And I was like, holy shit, this is, you know, like, it's it's just so weird to lose a party and stuff like that when you use your hands a lot and stuff. And I can still use my hands the way I want to, but it was just a very, it, it was very hard during the time.
1: Was that the most painful thing you've ever experienced?
2: You, physically, physically, I would say yes, the healing of it. You know, I'm, I'm on all, all sorts of drugs and everything. They prescribed Vicodin, Oxycontin, and I didn't like any of those drugs. I couldn't pee, I couldn't shit, you know. It changed my mood. It was nasty, but when I was healing, like days after the operation, it felt like there was a blowtorch on my finger. Oh shit! It was that sort of pain for like two days, and the oxycontin was subsided just a bit, but it was pretty. It was pretty intense.
1: Uh, yeah. So, would you say like how soon? I guess like how soon after that were you like I got to do this comedy thing?
2: So check it out. So I then then I, I hit the boxing gym, and I go boxing like hard. I go to Gleason's, I got a trainer. I boxed before, but I didn't box box. So now I'm, you know, I train, I mean, dogs, I weighed like 180 pounds. I went down to 165. I was all head. I looked like, (laughs) I looked like a blow pop, but I was ripped, like Bruce Lee ripped. And I was addicted, bro. I was like in the gym for three hours a day eating right. And then shortly after that, I said, I'm gonna do comedy. And I did stand up. And I never stopped. Dogs like my mentality changed. Like I, I, I felt like yo, I experienced mental and physical pain that no one I know has ever experienced. So I kind of felt unstoppable, and I was super hyper motivated. Then I stopped boxing for a while. I started lifting weights. It was weightlifting, and then it was it was stand up comedy. And when I did comedy, when I started stand up, I was obsessed. I would do like five open mics a day. I would do any show, and i you know, and, and it and I moved up like fast within the first five years, I got a Comedy Central, you know, uh, feature. And that shit is is trivial now. Like I look at that, it's like laughable. But during that time, it was a big deal. A BET on blast. There was a lot of things coming, you know, my way. And it was a great time. You know, I got a lot of self-discovery and uh, hidden potential I was tapping into.
1: Mm. Yeah, you know, it's it's crazy, but I feel like Intellectually, you wouldn't put the two together necessarily, but I look at my own life and I think about the toughest things that I've lived through or the toughest moments in my life. And in the moment, it's it's obviously the toughest thing that you're going through. But if you're able to, or when you're able to get on the other side of that, the toughest moments really could shape your life and totally give you, you know, a perspective. Or you know, in your case, it's like you know you lived through this incredibly challenging moment and you come out on the other side feeling like I'm unstoppable.
2: Yeah, but it doesn't stop there. You know, I mean, you know, we never always have it all figured out. There's always going to be challenges and that, and there's going to be hardships. There's going to be despair. That's just life. Yeah. You know, that's just life, and no one's exempt from it. So we have to embrace it. We have to continue our practices that keep us at a medium, grounded. Because, you know, I start stand up and I'm doing well, right? I have a great job. I'm moonlighting as a comic. I'm single. So a lot of good things are going on. But during this course of time, I'm drinking and I'm doing drugs, right? But when I'm doing them, it started off recreationally. It started off recreationally, what I considered recreational use. But stand-up lends itself, it's very accepting of, you know, drinking and drugs. So when I figured that out, I used to be ashamed of drinking before I went up on stage. But then I met some older comics like OGs who I looked up to and they were doing it. And they would take me in the bathroom, like, yo, you want to do some of this? And it's like it wasn't their doing. I was already doing it, but I never would entertain ever getting high before going up on stage. And you know, I could go into the intricate details of how that went down in chronological order, but I was already using, but I wasn't, I had the discipline not to use before I went up on stage. It didn't take long, Danny, before I started mixing the two worlds. And that made it very messy, very murky waters, because now my vision for stand-up, my five-year plan, was interrupted by partying, by hanging out with girls, by, you know, fucking around, not reaching my full potential. So if I had a show at 8 o'clock at night, that would be the only show I would do rather than going out the rest of the evening and hitting other spots. I would drink. And not do anything else, and that lasted for a few years. So hmm. I wasted a few years. I mean, I don't like to look at it, that wasteful years, because there was a lesson involved. But for years, I had interrupted my flow, you know, by drinking, doing cocaine, you know, smoking cigarettes. But I, what made it hard to get out of that is because I still maintained a job, I still have money in my pocket, I still boxed. And my relationships with people, for the most part, were intact. So no one really saw or was able to really identify my problem by myself. I knew what I I was doing, and I had all this underlying resentment towards myself and guilt. It's hard to deal with that shit when you're fully aware. Yeah. When you're smart enough to know that you're doing wrong, and and then you're not able to pull yourself out those grips, it makes it very frustrating and very lonely. Because no one was telling me, dogs, you need to get clean. Because no one could tell. I knew, though. You know?
1: Yeah. Are you sober today?
2: Yes, I am.
1: How did you end up, like, kicking the drugs, kicking the alcohol? Was there a moment, or was there something that sparked that in you?
2: Yes. So, after years of doing shit half-assed, and everyone's, like, battle with, like, substance is different. You know, I realized that, like, everyone's rock bottom is different. You know, people looked at me, and, they would never t- be able to tell. They're like, your surge guy his shit together. He has his own place. He does stand up. You know, he's a paid comic. He got a day job, and like, he's fun to be with. Like, no one could tell. But I was tormented, bro. Like, I just knew it got progressively worse. My network of people became, you know, drug dealers, drug users. I would tell myself, "Oh, I'm gonna stay sober uh, one week," and I could barely do that. I would get like, I would get high like two to three times a week. And so I started counting the hours of me hanging out. If I had a show, like on a Monday night, I hung out to four in the morning. Let's say eight to nine, ten, eleven, twelve, one, two, three, four. It's eight hours. You do that shit three times a week, plus rest and recovery. That's like a full-time job. <laughs> you know, that's the. I was like, holy shit! How do I rationalize this? The money spent, the rest and recovery, and then the the, the mental torment. You can't even send an email after a night of hanging out like that. So this went on and um, I checked myself into rehab. Once again, no one was telling me, I had the wits about me to be like, yo, you gotta figure this shit out. And I was trying to find a program where I could just like get it together. And dogs, it took like three years. I I would go back and forth, you know? And uh, I think what really inspired me, first off, I gotta say that there's no, no one's gonna stop you. You wanna do drugs and drink, you're gonna do it. You gotta want to fucking stop. And whatever assists with that change, it has to come internally. They could be outside.
1: Yeah, need it comes from within.
2: Yeah, but for the most part, you gotta really want the change. And I really wanted it. And the catalyst to that was my uh, my daughter being born. It was unplanned. I didn't want a kid, but I knew I needed to get clean, and I still couldn't. I still couldn't. You know, that that was scary. I remember she was six months old. I'm living in the studio apartment and I'm with uh, my wife now. And, you know, I hung out the night before and my daughter was like four, four months, six months old. And um, I walk in, you know, I don't know, like five o'clock in the morning and it's like 11 o'clock in the afternoon. By the time I wake up to the cries of my daughter, bear in mind, it's a studio apartment. So, you know, everything is in one room. Yeah. And my, my wife, she looks at me and she goes, you deal with this. You wake up and deal with this. And I looked at my daughter through the bars of her, uh, her crib and I didn't want to deal with it, Danny. Like I told myself, I don't want to do this. And that was the most like upsetting thing I can admit to myself. I was like, I can't believe I don't want to deal with this. Like nothing in me wanted to deal with it. And that sticks with me. That's a harsh reminder of how drugs could destroy you, you know, because I loved my daughter, you know, but at that time. I didn't want to play a role. I didn't want to be present. And partly because I was hungover right then and there, but also because I didn't feel like I was good enough, Hmm. you know? So shortly after that, I went to an outpatient program and that's shit that I checked myself into. And let me tell you, it was, it was back and forth, but then I finally got it. So it was probably like three times over at that same facility. And then one day, I mean, it just clicked. It just fucking clicked. And once again, hyper-motivated. You, you, got, you got these pink clouds. But everything I was dealing with prior, like unresolved problems, had to be revealed. I had to lift up layers and reveal what the fuck was going on in my life and try to repair them. And that was tough, dogs, because you're talking about years of what we consider trauma. You know, like I I had to peel them shits back and, and, and figure out, like, how do you deal with it? And I did it. You know, I did it.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. Were you using drugs and alcohol more to, like, numb past pains and things like that? Or was it more driven from just, like, from the scene that you were in and from being up late doing comedy and things like that?
2: I think when I was doing it, it was always for a good time. I never did it. It was like, oh, you know, because I'm hiding. I never thought of myself like that. Present day, I look back at the way I was behaving. And absolutely, I was trying to, you know to mask pain and stuff like that. But at the time, it was the scene. It was like, oh, I'm drinking, I'm partying, you know. This is always a party. But there's a reason why we do that. We don't want to accept responsibility. We don't want to face certain things. It took me getting sober to realize that. But during the time, it was was such a mess. I didn't have a clear idea or clear vision of why I was doing what I was doing in retrospect, I can look back now and I see all the patterns. I see how mm-hmm. I made it to a certain point and I was self sabotaging I would see how my network of people were people who kind of uh, praised me. Yeah, you know, those are real things. Like, I maintained a network of people who always propped me up, you know? Not people who challenged me. And I'm talking about, you know, sexual relationships or relationships with friends. Like, I always wanted to be propped up a little bit. And those are the hard things to admit to yourself. But I didn't realize that during the time. And retro, like looking back now, that oh, that was that was consistent, Mm. and that was the self awareness I kind of gathered and gained later on. So to answer your question simply, it was a little bit of both. It was you know masking the pain, but it was always always felt like a party too.
1: Yeah. What would you say was the hardest part of like kicking the drugs, kicking the alcohol, and stay like staying clean?
2: Well, there was many different things. First of all, when I was at my worst you know, using drugs and and, and drinking, I wanted to accept the fact, I remember saying this to myself, I said, oh, you're a junkie. You know, your father was a junkie. There's a lot of comics and actors and and performers who live this life. You're that. Just take on that label and identify as that. I remember telling myself, it's okay, that's going to be you. You're going to be like this grizzled, you know, drinking comic. I remember like entertaining that, identity that which is wild to me
1: yeah and you were you were like okay with that in your head yeah yeah
2: i mean i never you know fully accepted that but i remember thinking that way first of all when you first try to get clean i just felt i would sleep a lot the mood swings i was like holy shit my mood is not consistent mm. i was mad i was fucking moody for like a year i would take these di- these dips and i didn't realize it has such a grip on me, right? I mean, I felt like I couldn't socialize with people. I was still doing shows, big shows at Caroline's with, with friends of mine. And I would do my set very rigid and tight. And I would I'd go to the green room and I didn't want to interact with people. And I was like, how much longer is this shit going to last? Like how much longer am I going to deal, have to feel like so alone and, and self-conscious? And let me tell you, man, with practice of boxing, with practice, of, of running, with having sober friends, all that shit subsides and I became one with myself. I became a better version of myself, a more confident version of myself. When I was drinking and doing drugs, I was a less confident, my self-esteem was robbed from me. And when I got sober, I thought that shit wasn't gonna ever come back, but it does come back. And I can't imagine ever living that life again. But mm-hmm. to answer your question simply, the hardest part, was dealing with the slowdown, the boredom, and thinking that it's never going to get better. Like I just felt like inadequate. What seems to be a long time, I felt very outside of myself. I felt very raw.
1: Mm. Just to go back to boxing, you started boxing when you were when you were a kid.
2: Yes, yes, I started like in the boys' club and shit like that.
1: But did you have an amateur career? Do you fight amateur?
2: I always did a lot of sparring and stuff. It wasn't until years later that I did an amateur fight. It was much later, you know, it was in 2016. It was just something I wanted to do because I was fucking boxing for years and I was spar pros and amateurs and I was like a a gym fighter. And I was like, yeah, I want to make this shit like official. I want to have that book. I want to check it off. And I did it, you know, and I won. I almost stopped the guy and it was a great experience. But I never, I never did like amateur scene like that.
1: So I find that like boxing, like for me personally, The thing that I love about boxing is that I think it gives you a lot of perspective in other areas of your life, even if you're not like pursuing it professionally, just like getting in the ring with someone. And obviously the discipline, just the training, the workout, that's all awesome. You feel great. But I think specifically like sparring, it's a very humbling experience and it's you versus someone else. It's not like a team sport where you, where you have all these people to rely on. Right. I think for me, I've been boxing since I'm 11 and That's always been the thing that has brought me to like has kept me going to the boxing gym because the fact that it's like you or someone else, no one else is in there to help you. You have this scary person who wants to take your head off on the other side. Typically, in my case, they're always better than me and I'm trying to figure it out. And I think that like there's been so many lessons that boxing has given me that I take into other areas of my life. I'm curious if it's been a similar experience for you.
2: Absolutely. It's been the same exact experience. When someone was clearly better than me or not nice, you know, there was times where I'll go to the gym and my coach would be like, you're sparring today. And, you know, in my head, I want to make all these excuses like, Oh, I don't have my mouthpiece, you know? And there's <laughs> a don't. lot of things in life that are like that, you know? And when you step up to the occasion, you always feel better when you run away from it, that shit. And listen, I ran away too. And I'm not talking about from sparring, but I ran away from things in life and, you know, that guilt of not not facing your fears or, you know, being a coward, that should last a long time, you know, rather than addressing what the fuck is the deal and failing or whatever. but You always feel better. You're always dealing with the shit, stepping up to the plate. I've never regretted doing that. But I've, I have regrets of like walking away from things, running away from things. And that should last a long time. I can't think of any of that stuff now.
0: Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in-between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
2: But I definitely have experienced that. So boxing is a great analogy for that. There's been many times I don't want to do something. In regards to that, I'm like, fuck, this is going to suck. And, you know, you do it, you just feel like more of a complete human being. Because it's very primal, it's fighting. And it requires so much of you, physically, mentally. There's nothing like it, man.
1: Yeah, I would say even like the emotionally, like not for me. Like when I was growing up, I would do smoker, uh, Muay Thai, like kickboxing competition. And I remember sparring a lot of times. And I was I was much younger. I was like 16. So Didn't have like, I would say as much of a grip as I do have now around like my emotional intelligence, but there were times when I would spar and I would, I would leave the gym after getting beat up and I'd be crying in my car.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It definitely has the potential of doing that. And I think that's, um, going through that, man, it really does build character. It builds character and it's a special thing to experience.
1: Yeah. You know, I was telling you before we started recording my kickboxing coach from growing up, his fiance fought last night or first time and seeing that you know it's very inspiring because it just I was telling my wife like it takes so much guts to get in there especially when this isn't like your professional pursuit if you're doing it just as a one and done or you want to just test your own ability to see like what you're capable of the process or the journey of just getting to that moment of getting into the ring is one thing that's like its own journey that takes a lot of commitment discipline the training leading up to that, and then actually following through, seeing it through and getting into the ring with this other person who's, you know, typically I feel like you don't know obviously how much experience they have, but they're coming in there with bad intentions to take your head off. It takes a lot of guts to face
2: that. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's a a very courageous thing. it's not to be taken lightly either. You got to train for it, you know, whether it's a smoker, whether it's a, a, a charity event. I tell people all the time, like, You know, people get the misconceptions like, oh, I trained, I taken a class and I done pad work and I got videos of my power. It's different in a fight, man. Let me tell you something. You do a charity event, even a lot of these people are athletes. Like they might not have fought before, but they're competitive. You know, and you know, and granted, all this money is going to fucking cancer research or whatever. But you know, a lot of people say, Oh, I'm doing this for cancer research. No, they want to they want to fucking victory, they want to kick some ass. (laughs) No one's going there for for the, the sole purpose of cancer research. They want to win. They want to look good winning. So you got to show up and, you know, don't disrespect yourself by not training. <laughs> you know, yeah. like you want to go in there, like, serious.
1: Yeah, you know? absolutely. I think also it's funny because you, you want to, at least for for me, like, when I spar, I want to have fun, but you also, it's like, it's not just really about having fun because there are a million ways that I could have a great time having fun doing other things. It's like you're really trying to test yourself to see what you're physically emotionally mentally capable of and when you put yourself in a in a hard situation
2: right absolutely
1: and when did you start training people as a as a boxing trainer?
2: So interesting enough, it's funny how how everything kind of correlates. I've always trained soon after my daughter was born. I was clean. I um, was in the gym, the boxing gym a lot. And I came across, you know, I I, I met a comic who used to work at a gym and she said, you box a lot, you want to like run a class at my gym? And I was like, sure. So I did a small class and dogs. I just had a natural knack for it. Like I'm used to talking (laughs) to people. I'm doing stand-up, right? And now I'm introducing people to boxing, which is another passion of mine. So the two worlds fuse together. And dogs, once I started like doing classes, like it became very popular. I started picking up private clients, and I've always studied the human body. I, you know, I've always I always continued training. So I've always been a student. So it never got mundane to me. I've always been a student. I always trained while training people. And I think that helps me keep it innovative and interesting. And not too long after I started working on Overthrow, and I'm still doing stand-up. So the two worlds in conjunction with, with each other, just really complemented each other. I was able to make my own schedule. You know, these are two things I'm passionate about. And I became real good at both of them. And the response was inevitable to the point where, and what I mean by that, training people and doing classes, I had to say no to some of it, which is a good problem to have. Yeah, And, um, you know, I'm very fortunate to have the two passions in my life become careers in my life where I make money and I'm able to make my own schedule and I think that was made possible by always giving it the respect it deserves and what I mean by that is always constantly learning never feeling like I have it all figured out whether it's stand-up or boxing I always continue to train I always continue to try to do stand-up in a creative way that challenges me so I'm always like open to trying new things and then doing both of them a lot i do both in abundance
1: so before you you almost sawed off or sawed off your your finger like after that obviously like it kind of sparks you into pursuing comedy it sounds like you were already doing doing the boxing thing but what were you doing for work then full-time
2: i had various jobs i I was a a plumber's apprentice i hated that freaking job i was uh you know i did retail I was a law manager. It was an event space. I used to manage the law space. When did you
1: kick like all that, I guess, and just say, okay, I'm going to do, I'm going to really focus on comedy?
2: Yo, dogs, I got to tell you, it just kind of fell into place. I never told myself, this is what it's going to be. I've always just did it. And I did it a lot. And it was the one thing that gravitated, that I gravitated toward. I've always done stand-up. I just never stopped it. Even at my worst, even I, I just never stopped. You know, even though I wanted to quit, you know, I just never stopped and, you know, opportunities came. The same thing with boxing, like it's always been a part of my life. It's always been something, a place of uh, solace, a place to relieve myself creatively, a place of network, network with people I enjoy being around. So it was just something that naturally came to me, both worlds, yeah, both naturally came to and I just immersed myself in them, you know, um, yeah,
1: that's, and that's really it. That's awesome because, you know, I think a lot of people... They have like these things they're super passionate about, but a lot of people I I feel choose maybe the job they don't really like because it pays them well and they sort of table their passion or something that in their heart of hearts know they want to pursue because they take like more security, more safety. And it's always awesome to hear from someone who's, you know, pursuing and actually living out, doing the things that they're most passionate about and getting paid to do those things.
2: Yeah. I mean, I went with, with my gut and my heart with most of most of the decisions I made in my life. I just knew what felt right. Yeah, it's, it's always been like that for me. I'm not sure where, where that comes from. Yeah, it's always been like that for me. Anything that felt wrong, I'd never entertained for too long. You know, and, th- and that goes for relationships, with work, with partners I've had. It, it, you know when it feels right, you know? There's times where you're pursuing a passion and that doesn't feel like always comfortable, but it feels right, you know? Yeah. It feels right, it feels like, oh yeah, this is a place where I can, uh, I don't know, I can grow spiritually and, and I, I just feel like I have a real contribution to it. And it makes me, it fills my belly, you know? It makes me, it gives me it that makes you sense. feel whole. Yeah, it makes me feel whole.
1: In regards to comedy, so when you first start there, I'd love to hear about, I guess, the first time you got on a stage and what that experience was like.
2: So, I didn't know how to start. And I didn't want, you know, people were saying, go to Open Mic. And I was like, it's just weird. Like five minutes at open mic. I needed more structure, so I went to a place called the Manhattan Comedy School. Believe it or not, because I'm a person of structure. Like even when I first started training, I wanted to be in the gym. I wanted a coach immediately. I just I just didn't want to go in hitting a bag. I want a teacher. You know, mm-hmm. I want someone who has experience. I want to be a clean slate. So that has been my approach with stand up and boxing. With stand up, I went to a comedy school. Believe it or not, did like eight sessions with other people who want to do comedy and you do your five minutes of material week after week and then you do a graduation show the grad show is in front of your friends and family it just so happens it was a total of 300 people at caroline's (laughs) and it was a fucking amazing experience i was nervous as hell and it was a very supportive crowd at like 6 p.m on a sunday but that shit man i do that and i'm like oh i could do this and then it got real. Like, it, not every show was like that. I did another show there, and I didn't have any friends or family. And it was very humbling. You know, I did open mics that sucked, where it's like comics are there, they're looking at their notepads. I did every show imaginable, good and bad. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, and but I was never deterred. There's times I got frustrated with it. And my wife has heard it enough. Where I'm like, I want to quit this shit. You know? But I never stopped. I've always kept moving
1: were the moments that you wanted to quit was that more just like after a bad show or
2: it was a collection of a bunch of different things just being tired you know after bad shows you know what though i think a lot of the times where i seriously want to quit is when i was no longer challenging myself and that could be you know i wasn't turning over new material i didn't feel creatively fulfilled you know i mean there's going to be a template to what you what you can do, whatever. But a lot of times, you do what the fuck you want to do and challenge yourself. And I had to, I had to dig in deep to want to be creative. But mm-hmm. you know, if you're not doing that, what the fuck is the sense of doing it at all? The same thing with training or boxing. If you're running two miles every day for ten years, what the fuck? Like you're doing a maintenance, but you gotta you gotta break the barrier. You gotta keep on moving forward and challenging yourself. That's what makes it interesting. That's what makes it fun.
1: You know, a lot of people have fear over rejection or fear of failing. You know, you could think of that and apply it to your life in a multiple of ways, whether it be through like work, taking a career chance, pursuing a business you want to pursue, pursuing comedy. How did you develop thick skin or resilience around bombing or struggling as a comedian? Because I think that going back to like what I was saying at the beginning, I look at comedians and there's a lot of people who just aren't that funny, but I think just the, the pursuit of I've never like attempted to do comedy or anything like that. But I think just the the pursuit of it, you tell me, but I feel like you sort of know you're not going to be so funny maybe at the beginning or it's just going to be difficult and you're going to eat a lot of shit if you really want to pursue this. How do you develop the thick skin to know you're going to fail, know you're going to bomb, but still move forward?
2: I think to put it in simple, like the most simple way possible is if you're interested in doing something and doing it well, that's the inevitable, mm. you know, you have to, you have to fail, you know, and when you first do it, so new, like rejection while you're on stage, it's tough, man. But some people build differently. Some people, you know, can handle it better than others. But the thing is, we talked about no one's exempt from that sort of treatment and pain. Doing it over and over, I tell myself, yo, these days, like the way I look at my life, and I think this is just because I have years in, and I'm talking about in regards to any area of my life. If I fail, I'm like, "Fuck it," you know. Really, my attitude is "fuck it." I don't give it too much time. I move the fuck on because all this shit is too short. What we harp down, what we worried about—that shit is such a small microcosm of our life, you know. <laughs> yeah. And like, seriously, you think about all the things that that embarrassed you. It means nothing. It really means nothing, but we give it so much power. Like, the sooner you move on from it, and now, listen, it could be mourned, it should be addressed, and it should be taken seriously, but not too seriously. Like, you know, whatever. However, if the mistakes are being made over and over again, you need to make the adjustments, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, so I'm just saying, keep on fucking moving forward with it.
1: It sounds so simple, but it it really is a great perspective to have because, you know, the things that stress you out or that that pull you from actually pursuing your dreams or the thing you really want to do or the job you want or the business you want to start. You know, if it's just a little bit of fear, having sort of that "fuck it" mentality that, you know, like what's the worst that can happen is can really help, you know, propel you forward, obviously.
2: Yeah. And and listen, the fact of the matter is, and this is some real shit right here. It's not going to be for everybody. What you have in mind for your life today, oh, I want to do this. That that shit may not be it. You may be in for a rude awakening. You may be in for yo. Know, it may it may not be for you. And the sooner you're willing to accept that, after trying over and over, yo, know, listen. Sometimes you don't got it, you know. But I will say, your attempts in trying are not in vain because that's gonna build morale, build courage. For something else it might put something else in place for you where your true contribution lies you know sometimes we have an idea like oh this is what i need in life this is what i want in life and you're you're attempting to hit that goal and then you sidetrack because that shit doesn't work that's not meant for you you know it just doesn't work you're not good enough or that the powers that be don't allow it but putting that, the, that effort forward, it opens up another door. And that's just the way life is. Mm. I've seen it, you know? So what you think is for you may not be for you, you know, and this understand, like we're constantly not me and you personally, but I think generally speaking, we live in a society, a world where we're trying to bend the world for our needs. You know, we're, we're trying to pull the energy So you got to be a little bit of a conformist, like flow with it. You know, like Bruce Lee said, I kind of flow like water. You have your goals and shit. You know what you want to do. But that shit might be swayed by the ties, by the circumstances. It may be different. You may end up doing something radically different than you ever imagined. It may be a beautiful, fulfilling thing. And that's just the way life is. Like the moment you become hell bent, like, oh, this is it or nothing. You're going to be in for a lot of you know, unhappy moments. And those unhappy moments are inevitable anyway. Be conf- uh, conformist, be open to what the universe provides. Cause there's a whole lot of shit out there. We become hell bent on one specific thing and you'd be surprised what other things could be offered or, you know, presented to you. Yeah.
1: That's great advice. I could not agree with that more.
2: Right. I mean, percent. Yeah, you know, have you think, Oh, this is for me. And it's like, Oh no, this is not for you. But the attempts are never in vain. So, That's the thing. I think people get, oh, what a waste of time. No, it wasn't a waste of time. You know how much good came out of doing the work for this? Yeah, it
1: it shapes you. It gives you lessons. And sometimes, like you're saying, you know, you pursue something. It doesn't work out. But that might have opened up a door to something entirely different.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. I think
1: for me, like when I look at my own life, that's why I, I typically, like I rarely would say no to an opportunity. I tend to put more on my plate than I can handle more in an attempt to sort of open up doors and see sort of what's behind that door and then make a decision from that point. Mm -hmm. What's your process for creating material or creating new material? What's that like for yourself?
2: You know, it's interesting. Everyone's different. For me, are you a big rap fan? I like rap. You like rap, right? So you might get somebody like Eminem is very lyrical. He writes a lot of his shit out. Then you get someone like Jay-Z who just goes in the booth and says it out, you know. So everyone has like, a, like. I have comic friends who are super successful, who are very meticulous about their setup, twist, punchline. If I'm in a conversation with somebody early in the day, a friend, and I'm just flowing, you know, we're having a good time talking about boxing and I'm saying some funny shit, I'll try to capture the essence of what made that funny. Mm. And it would be a one word. It would be a word like dismay. That's a funny word for me dismay because that's not a word that I use a lot so how do I create a contrast with dismay because that's funny right the funny is a surprise right what's the surprise and dismay Oh, the funny is like I wouldn't use a word like dismay so I'm going to use that (laughs) in talking about something so my process is that simple it's very like detailed oriented where I like words and Mm. I play with those words I'm very conversational I'm very I know my strengths on stage. I'm very conversational. I'm very um, personable. So with that, I got to make sure that I perform my ass off and and I remain personable. I'm not going to be a robot like dispensing a setup, twist, punchline, because I don't really talk like that. I don't really, that's not the way my culture, that's not the way I was brought up. So I maintain what's organically me. Personable, animated. And then I use specific words to describe what I want to talk about. Mm. So my process is simple, everyday conversations with people I'm very comfortable with, and I try to capture the essence of that and bring them on stage with a strange audience. Mm. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And when you said this, us now, it put me right back at the show.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, that's, that's actually a newer thing I've been playing with, and it hits hard because I think people understand exactly where I'm coming from. And that's why I chose that word to explain, give you an example. Sounds so funny. a lot of times I'm just, I'm catching snippets of a conversation. Cause I feel for me, my my comedy is at best when I'm talking to the audience as if they're friends and family of mine. Mm. If I can create that intimacy with, with five people, with 3000 people, I think my job is done. That's my strong suit. I know where I fit in.
1: What's it like performing at a theater? What's the most amount of people you perform for? So
2: I perform like in front of 5,000, 6,000 people before. The difference is, and going back to where we started, with the Beacon, I didn't want to give it the power it could potentially take. Meaning it's a New York show. There's a lot of people I know that's going to be there. It's Chris DeStefano, the guy I'm opening for, the headline. It's a big night for him. It's not really about me. I'm just very happy to be a part of it. I'm super proud of him. But leading up to it, it was a conscious effort on my part not to give it the power. So every day leading up to that, I worked out. I did the same practices I would do just to maintain a clear head. Mm. I did my spots, and I knew the night of it needed to be a performance. I couldn't fuck around like it was a club show. So I had a good idea what I was going to do, but because it's 3,000 people, I made sure I performed each and every joke. And what I mean by perform, anything that's a punchline, I performed the act out with it. I had segues into the next joke because I wanted the 15 minutes to feel like a performance. And I think I got that. I think that the audience felt that.
1: Yeah, it was so good. That
2: was definitely a conscious effort on my part. So when it's a big show... And it's to be a big performance, even for a short set. 15 minutes is short in regards to how long a comic could do on stage. But I made sure that um, I'm going to perform my ass off for them. And, you know, that's what I did.
1: Now, like looking back, obviously, or just like as you look at more theaters, do you ever take a moment, just think like, fuck, this is crazy. Or like, this is unbelievable that I'm living this life or...
2: You saying that gives me goosebumps because... A lot of times I do feel that way, and it feels very good to be present. And you know why I'm present? Because I'm sober, so yeah. I'm able to really appreciate things in real time. Why I'm able to be grateful for it? Because I'm not living in the past. I'm not living in the future. I, yo, when I'm at those shows, I walk around the theater before the crowds load in. I look at the detail, the architecture, and I, like how beautiful, beautiful it is. I Google it. I, I go on Wiki. You know, I go on Wiki just to see the history of the theater. Like it's all very interesting to me. And it's like, holy shit, man. I can't believe I'm in a place in my life where I get to visit someone's beautiful city with their beautiful people. And fucking do jokes and get paid and hang out with one of my best friends. That shit is bananas. Yeah. Because it's not like a working relationship where, like, Chris doesn't know me. It's like one of my best friends. I get to fucking work with my best friend, talk shit on stage for 20, 30 (laughs) minutes, get paid in a beautiful theater. That shit is bananas. And I take none of that shit for granted. It is wild to me.
1: Yeah. And it's a lot of people.
2: It's a lot of people. And you know what? Let me tell you something about it. Uh, People who come to a theater show, they come to have a good fucking time. You know, you got a club show in the city. Some people are just tricked into getting there, go, going there. Some of them are holding their political ideology close to their heart. That you know, whatever. That you know, we're living a weird time right now. So they come in the, to the, the shows and they're a little tight. You know, they're a little reserved. At a theater show, very rarely are you gonna have that. You have very good energy because these people pay money for the fucking ticket. They know what they're going to see, so they're open. And you get the best experience possible as a performer 99% of the time. In a comedy club, you do too most of the time. But there's assholes. There's people who go there. They don't really want to be there. In their head, they they already have a defensive attitude as an audience. You can't say that and, you know, that bullshit, you know. But not theater shows for the most part. They're ready to have a really good time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's funny too, because right. Obviously I've, I've only seen you one time. It was, it was at the beacon just by chance. It's like just how it, it it ended up working out. But you know, like I said at the beginning, I look at you as like the gym acquaintance. I see you in the gym, but just for me seeing like you on that stage, you know, it's a huge theater. I felt so proud for you just Thank because you, it's like, you know, you can look at that and know the, the struggle, the work behind getting to that moment and seeing that and seeing you up there, it's just like, you know, I, I I love seeing someone who takes the road less traveled, says like, fuck it to the social norms of what is deemed like by society is, hey, this is what you're supposed to do in life. And you're up there, you know, living your dream life, pursuing your dream up there on the stage, performing for thousands of people. And it was just so awesome to see.
2: Thank you, man. And you know, what, what's crazy is that Hearing that from you is very powerful because I honestly don't think of it. I, I do think of it that way. I, I respect it. And I'm But in a lot of ways, I just do it a bunch. You know what I'm saying? Like, I try to treat that that night as if it's any other night. Yeah, But just the repetition. feeling of it is very intense. You know what I'm saying? You know, from the outside in, I do realize that's the, the perspective. And, and it's like, that's special to me. And I love to hear that. But I, I always try to, you know, remain as grounded as possible with with all that stuff because I think that's the best way to be because if I allow any of the accomplishments or any of the failures to have too much power, I feel like it alters my flow. So I just try to keep staying in that medium throughout.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Where do you see yourself in like three years, five years from now?
2: You know what, man? I don't think too much about that. Mm. I I never have. And I'm not sure if that's necessarily a bad thing. I've always been, I've recently become more goal-oriented, but I've lived my life just going with what felt good to me, what felt natural, what felt... And and so when it came to goals, I'm not sure if that was a thing driven by fear, like, oh, if I set a goal for myself, with stand-up comedy specifically, I'm going to be annoyed and very heartbroken if it doesn't work out. With athletic performances, I have, and I feel like you definitely need to, and probably creatively too, but... When it came to running marathons, when it came to like competing, like boxing, whatever, I had the goals. Like I had to physically envision it. With stand-up, I just do it a lot. I just really enjoy it. And However, wherever the tide should take me, that's fine. But I don't really have mm. like specific goals. I guess if I did, it would be I want to compose a comedy album or an independent special. That would be like within the next two years.
1: Got it. Yeah, that's interesting to hear because also, you know, it sounds like, you very much just like have always leaned into your intuition or your gut and it seems to have worked out really well.
2: Yeah. And I appreciate that.
1: You know, we can start to wrap up the show. One question I like to ask everyone who comes on this podcast is all about building your dream life. What would be your bits of gold on how to build a life you
2: love? I think for everyone, it could be quite different. I've always consciously tapped into very painful things in my life. And I've always been driven by darkness. I like dark music. I like the blues. I like my hip hop dark. And I love the light stuff too. I love biographies. I wanna hear the grit, the dirt, the grime of people's stories. That shit, like I've always been moved by that. Mm. And no one's exempt from that, right? Like we all have that in our lives. If you could tap into that and accept the darkest part of your life, you know, it's a very powerful thing. I I, I feel like it could be a, a, a super, it could be a superpower. So things, if I look back at my life and I think of all the hardships, I've always made sure that there was a a way to flip that around. Hmm. Because you're already down. You're already down and out. The only place to move is up. So I always keep that shit a little close to me. I always keep a little bit, and I, I remind myself And I share it too, because I have a feeling when you share the darkest part, the most vulnerable uh, side of yourself, you relate to people. A lot of times we want to share their accomplishments and all that. And that's why when you say nice things about the Beacon Theater, I'm like, yeah, I appreciate that, Danny. And it is a big deal. It was was a big deal to me. But I keep it at bay with how much I think of myself being on a show like that. Mm. And then I'll share something else. I'll share the fact that, yeah, I mean, that's a good thing, but I've seen some very ugly things, right? And I like to share that part of my life too because not only does it keep me grounded, but it's also, I think, inspiring to others. Like, the people don't feel alone when you share that. You know, accomplishments are one thing. It's like, you could motivate people with accomplishments. It can also be off-putting, always talking about that. So I like tapping into... The dark shit.
1: Yeah, you know?
2: 100%. Yeah. That's what it is. I'm, I'm being very wordy right now. But, you know, keeping anything that was very hard to deal with close to you and realizing, man, you could fucking – we could turn it up from anywhere.
1: Mm, I love that. Where can people connect with you, follow you? And I'll include it in my show notes too.
2: I'm very active on uh, on Instagram. It's Sergio Chacon. Straightforward, my full name. Same thing with my website, com. My comedy dates are there. Training information is there. And yeah, I'm not hard to find. It's very easy, very accessible.
1: Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today, Sergio.
2: Dan, this is great. Thank you so much. I appreciate you.
1: All right. Awesome. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Bits of Gold podcast. If you like this episode, please take a minute, share with a friend subscribe and leave a review on apple Podcasts it would really mean the world to help the show grow. Thank you so much again and have an awesome week. I, you I, I love your podcast. This is
0: gold. This <laughs> Here's a cool fact.